Good morning. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Meadowland Church. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to be with you on this fine Sunday morning. Hey, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, uh, verse 21. If you're going to be uh, using one of the Bibles that we provided for you, um, that's going to be on page 840. I uh, also want to give you an invitation if you want to turn on your Bibles. We, we are in the digital age, and so you can go digital. Um, if you brought your own Bible, I have no idea what page that's on. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. Of verse 21 this morning is we're in our series called Family Vacation. What we've been talking about for the last couple weeks is really the idea of a vacation and really the definition of a vacation is a journey to a different destination with the intent of rest, relaxation, and rejuvenation. And so for over the last couple weeks we've been talking about the idea within our households, within our families, is what if we together took a journey that would maybe take our families to a different destination that would provide us with more rest, relaxation, and rejuvenation that came from Jesus. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about different things, like how do we build our families upon the rock? Uh, what does it look like to be a, a gospel-centered family? We've been talking about those things, and sometimes what happens when we talk about stuff like that is I'll get comments from people who say, man, my, my husband really needed to hear that, or my wife really needed to hear that, or my kids really needed to hear that one. And maybe you are a child, a wife, or a husband, and you, you just fit one of those, and so somebody told me that was for you. But anyway, this week isn't for your wife, so it's not for your husband, so it's not for your kids, it's not for your mom, it's not for your dad, it's not for your dog, it's for you. Because what we're talking about today is a little bit different than what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. I want to talk about your relationship with God this morning. Because one of the things that's interesting as we really begin to, to wrestle with and search through Scripture is Jesus shows up, the hero of our Bibles, the center of the story, and he begins to teach us how exactly do we relate to God, our Father? Like, what does it look like? What do we call him? And what Jesus reveals is that we should call him Father. The reason that we call God Heavenly Father is because Jesus told us to. In fact, that was a new idea for the disciples. When they say Jesus praying and they, they say to Jesus, listen, we, we want to pray like you pray. Could you teach us to pray? Jesus goes, yeah, pray, pray like this. He says, our Father in heaven. Now you go, why would he teach them that? Because they had never thought of that one before. You know, you read through the Old Testament, there were all these really big official names for God. So, some of them so holy and so specific that you didn't even say it out loud. And Jesus shows up and says, listen, 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 I, I, nobody knows the Father better than me. He and I are one. And so here's what I want you to know. He really wants you to know him as Father. And Jesus comes back to this theme all the time. He's beginning to tell the disciples about God knows what they need and will provide for them. And he says, listen, God watches over the birds. And he watches over the flowers of the field. And how much more valuable do you think you are to your Father who loves you? In fact, Jesus tells us about prayer. He says, before you even ask, your heavenly Father knows exactly what you need. Now, the reason we're going to talk about this morning within the context of family is because the church is one big family. When we come together, this is like a big family gathering to worship Jesus, and we do it because it honors our Father because he told us to do it. And that means there's some really neat stuff, like you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we're a family. But it also means this, that in a room this size, odds are there's plenty of us here who have daddy issues. And when I say we have daddy issues, I mean we have some issues with our Heavenly Father. 
And maybe there's been some rough patches in our walk. Maybe there's been some things that have hurt us or hindered us. And my guess is, is that we need to wrestle through a few of those things. In fact, as we open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 5 this morning, I think we see God in a way that would help us in our relationship with him. Now, I'm going to make some assumptions, and I want you to join me in making these assumptions as we launch into Mark chapter 5. So I want to talk about these for just a second. See, I believe God is a God who pursues us. I think as we read our Bibles, especially as we go through the Gospels, we have a God who desperately pursues his people. And I see Mark chapter 5 through this context that we have a God who pursues us, and I believe this about you. I believe God is pursuing you. I believe he has pursued you. I believe he is pursuing you right now, and he will continue to pursue you. Now, the issue for most of us is that we are not desperate for God. Like, you didn't wake up this morning and go, God, I am desperate for you. Like, if you don't show up, if you're not my first breath, if you're not my first thought, I won't be able to exist today. Most of us are not desperate for God until we need to be. And see, there's these moments and there's these circumstances and these crises and crises in our lives that cause us to be desperate. That maybe your boss tells you, hey, we got to lay you off at the end of the week. And now you go, God, I need you. How will I and what will that and how will the bank and how will I feed them? God, if you don't show up, we become desperate for God. Maybe you receive that diagnosis from the doctor and you get desperate. God, I think you can and I hope you will and this doesn't look so good and if you don't show up. Or maybe you've tried to raise your kids to the best of your ability and then they go wild, rebellious, begin doing things that are worse nightmares for parents and you get desperate, mom and dad. Like, God, if you don't and if you don't and if you won't and if you don't show up, God, we're desperate for you. And see, what's so fascinating is that we serve a God who is desperately pursuing us. And sometimes God uses those moments where we actually turn towards him and he's already there because he's already been pursuing us. And see, as we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 5, I think we begin to see a God who pursues us. Now, here's, here's the other thing you have to know. Is the reason that God pursues us so that we could find salvation in his son, Jesus. And if we would be saved by Jesus, here's what I absolutely believe, that that would provide us with joy. In fact, maybe the easiest way to say it is like this, is God is after your joy, not your behavior. See, when most of us think about God coming after us, when most of us think about God pursuing us, when most of us think about being in a relationship with him, we instantly get to behavior modification. That I have to do the right things, and I have to say the right things, and I have to be with the right people and be at the right places. But that's not what it says in Scripture. See, I think God is a God who is after your joy. As a father, God wants to bring joy into your life. And he pursues you, and he pursues you, and he pursues me, and he pursues me. So that we would discover Jesus who would give us salvation and joy, who's the fulfillment of all those things. And see, the reason that some of us struggle with our relationship with our Father is because we think God's after our behavior when God's really after our joy. And he wants to bring joy into your life. And he wants to bring joy into my life. And the way he does that 
is through Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Every single one of us, at one point or another in our lives, there's this really kind of weird, kind of strange thing that happens to us. And there becomes this softness that happens to us. That there's this thing that happens where you become more concerned with little children than you are concerned with yourself. And it shows up in little ways, right? Like, I don't care if you're the toughest dude in the room. At some point, when a little kid comes up to you with an empty cup and tells you there's coffee or tea in there, you have fake tea time or fake coffee time. I don't care who you are. In fact, if you're a parent, right, having kids really messes you up, doesn't it? Like, there are things that you would not do if you did not have kids. Like, for instance, a typical evening in the Reardon home, about 7, 7.30, there's wrestling time. There's some sort of fight that breaks out where I get beat up by both my kids, and they absolutely love it. And they're getting bigger, so it really hurts now. Like, <laughs> there, there are times I tell my wife, they may have broke a rib. Like, that may have happened. Now, what this looks like is my kids are totally into superheroes, and that's awesome because I can relate. And so... I usually get appointed to be a superhero. Usually I get Superman, which I think is pretty cool because one day my kids will know that I'm not Superman, but they don't right now. The other night I got to be Optimus Prime, so that was pretty cool too. Being Optimus Prime has its perks until they want you to turn into a truck. Can't pull that one off. And, And so Nolan is usually Flash, and then Shane is into Tigers, and so he's like Tiger Man. He's created his own guy, and I'm cool with that. And so we wrestle. And then after we wrestle, we usually pull out bean bags or a lot of blankets And we watch some sort of show, and we have snuggle time. There's a lot of snuggling that takes place in our home. Now, here's the thing. If you would have called me five, ten years ago at 7.30, said, hey, bro, what are you doing? That would not have been my answer. Like, I would have not said, dude, just wrestling with some of the guys, pretend to be Superman. You know, it's kind of cool. And in a minute, we're all going to snuggle. And... (laughs) And we're going to watch Daniel Tiger, because I, I want to know what happens next in Daniel Tiger's life. You know, I, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers. They've recreated it. It's Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. My kids love it. They sing songs when it's time to share. They sing the sharing song. Like, I, I would have not told you that 10 years ago. In fact, if I told you that 10 years ago, you'd have been like, we need to pray for him. <laughs> Called him up, snuggling. I mean, this is like Daniel Tiger, like a grown man should not be watching Daniel Tiger by himself. And he shouldn't be, by the way. Somebody was like, man, he called me out. And yet having kids has kind of messed me up. And the reason that I do things now that I didn't do things then is because I want want to bring joy into my kids' life. Like I want them to grow up having those memories of good times with mom and good times with dad. And I want them to experience joy in their life. But here's the problem that every single one of us faces is we believe deep down somewhere in our hearts that we will not experience real joy Unless we get to live our lives the way we want to. And unless we get to do everything we've ever wanted to do. See, as much as I want to bring joy into my kid's life, there's also times where I have to tell them no. In fact, sometimes it gets more serious than that, that not only do I have to tell them no, but sometimes I have to remove something from them or remove them from some sort of situation. So like new to the Reardon house this year, we have a trampoline in the backyard it's a cool trampoline. It's got a net so they can't, like, go bouncing out. It's pretty awesome. But, like, my kids get wild on this thing. And somehow, I don't know how, but there's two big rubber balls, a big red rubber ball and a big blue rubber ball, and my kids jump on the trampoline, and they play this game called Stay Away from the Balls. 
And it's this idea that if a ball hits you, you're out or something like that. And they really get jumping and balls are flying everywhere. And like I can see, like just I can just see somebody getting hurt. And, and so like we have this new rule. Only one person gets to jump at a time. Somebody has to sit on the edge. And, and like it never works well for more than 30 seconds. You know, you're like, hey, only one person jumping, only one person jumping. And one kid sits down, like you turn around for a minute and they're both back up. And it's like, well, it's my turn, Dad. It's my turn. And the other night, I, I had to tell him again, guys, you're going to have to get off the trampoline if you can't follow the rules. And, like, I would have expected this from Shane, who's five, but no one who's two looked at me, and he's like, Dad, you're no fun. And I was like, no fun, huh? <laughs> I, I'll show you. I can show you. You want to see no fun? I'll make your life no fun. And, and it kind of threw me back a little bit. Because I'm like, listen, I bought the trampoline. I built the trampoline. It took me about 27 hours to put the net up around the trampoline. And that was Audrey and I together. And FYI, the net's on inside out, okay? <laughs> and we got done with it, and I went, I'm not doing that again. They can, they can zip it from the inside, okay? Done deal. And then you're going to tell me I don't want you to have any fun. And see, you and I do the same thing to the Lord. So I go, but God, but I really want to. And he goes, yeah, but that's not good for you. But God, I have my plan. He goes, yeah, but my plan is a little bit different than your plan. See, for most of us, we think God is good when things are going really good. But when things go bad, we begin to assume bad things about God. And as we enter Mark chapter 5, this is what's happening. In fact, Mark chapter 5, verse 21 starts this way. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Now, here's my assumption. My assumption is that Jesus is pursuing the people that he's about to meet. Because at this point, who's done all the moving? Jesus. See, Jesus went from there to here. Jesus is the one moving. Jesus is the one that's coming. Jesus is the one that's pursuing. And I think he's making a divine appointment. I think Jesus is making himself available because he knows there's not one but two people who need to have an experience with him. So he goes to where he needs to be so they can have their experience with him. And this is what happens. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, And seeing him, he fell at his feet, being Jesus' feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Now, this is really significant. Because what Scripture tells us is that Jairus, who's going to be the main character of this story, is a leader, a ruler in the synagogue. Now, here's what you know if you've read the New Testament. Jesus and people in the synagogue don't really get along. The Sadducees and the Pharisees oppose Jesus. Because Jesus makes some really wild claims, like he's the son of God, that he has the power to forgive sins, that he doesn't have to follow all of the Old Testament commands, like healing on the Sabbath, that he can do things that they've had rules upon rules upon rules about for a long period of time. And see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees believe they actually need to oppose Jesus because he surely can't be the Messiah because of the things he says and because of the things he does and because of the people he hangs out with. But see, Jairus gets 
desperate. His child is sick. He's done everything he knows how to do. And his daughter is dying. And so out of desperation, he comes to Jesus. But here's what I want you to see. I don't think it's really Jesus. I don't think it's really Jairus pursuing Jesus. I think it's Jesus pursuing Jairus. Going, I know what's going on. I know the situation. I know that you're at the end of the rope. And so I just put myself right where I needed to be so you and I could get together. And see, I think in Mark chapter 5, Jesus sets a divine appointment. And I think in your life, in my life, there's times where Jesus sets divine appointments. In fact, maybe the reason some of you are here this morning is because Jesus wants to have a time to interact with you. Because he wants you to come face to face with him today. Because he's been pursuing you. And he is pursuing you. And this is what happens then. Jairus comes to Jesus and he goes, listen, I don't know what else to do. But I believe some things about you. I believe that people have been healed by you. I believe that you've been doing some things that no one else has ever really done before. And so here's the thing. Even though you and I don't see eye to eye, I'm so desperate, Jesus, I'm willing to give you a try. I want you to come to my daughter because I think if you come to my daughter, something amazing could happen. Like I even think you could heal her. And I imagine if I put myself in a father's shoes in verse 24, that Jesus agreeing to go with him had to be incredibly good news. That was probably pretty exciting. But what happens next has also happened to you and I at some point in our journey, and it's caused us some problems. Mark chapter 5, continuing on in verse 24, says, And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and throned about him. And there was a woman who had had discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him. And in the crowd, she touched his garments for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So Jesus agrees to go with Jairus. And as they're going, there's this crowd that gathers. And within that crowd, there's a woman who's been sick for a lot of years, 12 years. And she has so much faith. She has so much confidence in Jesus that she believes this. She believes that despite the years of suffering, despite she spent all her wealth on doctors, despite all that stuff, if she could just reach out and touch Jesus, she would be healed. Now, that's incredible faith. And so she does her best to get near Jesus. She does her best to be part of that crowd. And see, what's always interesting to me, and it always makes me nervous about Christians and churches, is that there's always people around Jesus, but it seems like there's only a few that have experiences directly with him. And see, there's all this crowd around Jesus, and this woman reaches out, and she believes if she could just touch him, if she could just somehow make physical contact with him, that because of his holiness, because of his goodness, because of his power, because of the fact that he is the Messiah, that just by touching him, somehow she would be healed. And it said immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, 
And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now this is fascinating. Jesus is on his way to go to Jairus' house to heal his sick daughter. In the process, this huge crowd gathers around. People have heard about Jesus. They've heard about his healings, heard about his miracles. So there's all those people gather around. They, they want to see Jesus. And yet there's this one woman who's been sick for a really long time who believes if she could just touch him, she would be healed. And so she touches him, and she's healed. And what's interesting is Jesus notices something's happened here. Something significant is taking place. So Jesus stops in this huge crowd and goes, who touched me? Just a question. Do you? Who touched me? And the disciples go, come on, Jesus. Hundreds of people here. Everybody's touched you at least once. What do you mean somebody touched you? And I love the way the scripture says it, that the woman with fear and with trembling, I think she comes to Jesus in fear and trembling for, for two reasons. I think number one, she recognizes who Jesus really is. See, some people think he might be the Messiah, but she knows full well. He is the Messiah. I think the other reason she approaches him with fear and trembling is because I think she believes she might get in trouble for what took place. See, just, just to give you some insight, somebody who was a rabbi or a teacher or a priest, which Jesus says he's all three, had to follow certain Old Testament ceremonial law, which included things like not healing somebody on the Sabbath, it included things like not touching or being around certain types of people, certain times of meat, and definitely not doing anything unclean or touching anything unclean. And this woman who is sick is unclean. And so I think she thinks, hey, I might get in some trouble here. I broke some rules. In fact, the condition she had would prevent her under ceremonial law from even supposing to be in this crowd. And so she walks up and she's like, hey, Guilty. It was me. And I think part of her belief is Jesus might undo this miracle. Like maybe she didn't deserve it. Maybe Jesus didn't intentionally do it. Maybe somehow she stole some of his power. She stole a miracle away from him. So she approaches and says, hey, it was me. I did it. I did it. Now, now here's, here's the thing. Because of this woman's condition, she's poor. She's probably not in any type of loving relationship with anyone. She's probably an outcast. And Jesus turns to her and says, daughter. And that moment had to be significant. I mean, to hear a word of affirmation, to hear a word of position, to hear the Messiah say, hey, you are a daughter of the Most High God. And I'm not going to undo this. In fact, go in peace and be well. I think the crowd had to be amazed. I mean, there had to be this talk of Jesus is so powerful that people just get saved if they touch him. And see, I think this story is incredible. I think these scriptures are amazing. Amazing. 
but not for one person. You know the one person who this isn't awesome for? Jarius. See, Jarius has a daughter who's sick, right? Darius has a daughter who's on knocking on death's door. And he's like, Jesus, will you come with me? Jesus, will you come with me? My daughter is sick. And Jesus says, yeah, I'll go. And so Jesus, come on, come on, come on, let's go, let's go. And I imagine somehow in the crowd, the crowd began to gather and become so great around Jesus that it pushed Jarius to the outskirts. I imagine Jarius is trying to get Jesus' attention. I'm over here, I'm over here, we're going this way, I'm going this way. And then Jesus stops. Who touched me? Can you imagine being a parent in that situation? Could you imagine thinking that you have the answer, that you have the solution to save a person you love, and the person stops, and you're going, no, 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 no. And then he goes, who touched me? Like, if you're Jarius, you're frustrated, you're Jairus going, you're seriously going to take the time to figure this out? You're seriously going to interview these people? Listen to your disciples. There's too many people. We have got to get to my daughter. She is dying. And then the woman comes and she drops down before Jesus. And you've got to imagine, Jesus, Jairus is going, she's been six for 12 years. She can wait 10 more minutes. And then she's like, I'm healed. And you've got to imagine, Jairus is like, she's fine. Let's go. Like, let's go. And then things get worse. Scripture says that in verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, don't miss this. For some of us, this is a piece of our story. And maybe for some of us, this is a piece of our story that we haven't totally reconciled yet. In fact, maybe there's some of us here that if we were completely honest, we would say that this is a barrier or a hindrance in our relationship with God. Because, see, we were in a circumstance or a crisis or a situation where we thought and we believed that if God got involved and if he would do what only he could do, then maybe that situation would have turned out differently for me. Maybe that sickness would have only been a sickness and not a death sentence. Maybe that financial road bump wouldn't have led to all that debt and having to file for bankruptcy. Maybe those marital arguments would have never led to divorce. Maybe if Jesus just would have. If maybe he would have just shown up when I thought he would have shown up. And maybe if he would have done what I thought only he could do. And maybe if he would have done what was on my agenda for him to do, then I would have never ended up in this situation. And it's real. And it's frustrating. And it's painful. And this is where Jarius is right now. Jesus, I came to you. I believed in you. I told you the situation. You said that you would come. And now my daughter's dead. Because you didn't come like I thought you would come. And you didn't go the way I thought you should have gone. And it didn't work out the way I thought it should work out. And see, I think Jesus creates this tension. I think Jesus creates this moment for both Jarius and for you. It's because in this moment, what Jesus reveals to Jarius 
is that he is not interested in submitting to Jairus' plan for him. Rather, Jesus is most interested in Jairus submitting his life to him. See, and I think the same is true for you and the same is true for me. That Jesus is not interested in submitting himself to your plan and my plan for him in our lives. What Jesus is most concerned with is you and me submitting ourselves fully to him. And see, maybe one of the greatest indicators in your life and my life that we fully submitted to Jesus would be that we would be okay with his plan. That when things don't go the way we think they should go, that we could still sing the songs that we sang this morning. That when the day isn't going the way we thought it would go, when the kids aren't acting the way we think they should act, when we got the diagnosis we never thought we would get, when the boss comes in and says the things he never thought we would say, when we have a conversation with our spouse, we go, we didn't think that was ever going to happen. Could you still go, hey, God, your love never fails. You work everything out for my good because your love never fails. See, I think Jesus reveals to you and to me that he is most interested in you and I surrendering to him. He is not all that interested in us trying to force him to submit to our plan. And here's why. Number three. Because God's plans for us are better than our plans for us. God's plans for you are better than your plans for you. And God's plans for me are better than God's plans for me. His plan is best. God's plan is better than my plan. God's plan is better than your plan. God's plan is better than our plan together. And see, what happens usually in your life and my life is when things don't go our way, we begin to question God's love for us. That when things are good, God is good. When things are kind of, mm, God's just kind of, mm. And see, we try to define God by our circumstances rather than defining our circumstances by our God. And see, I love this because then Jesus pipes into this entire conversation. Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear only believe. Now, now, listen, listen to this. I would not be comforted by this. Like, if I'm in Jarius's shoes, I'm probably a little bit agitated. Because if you've been trying, if you've been working, at least if I've been trying, if I've been working, if I've been trying to get Jesus to come to my house and heal one of my kids, and he doesn't come, and he doesn't walk, and he kind of stops and has like a little healing service in the middle, and then things don't go the way I think they should go. And I'm starting to have this conversation and somebody goes, hey, don't bother the teacher, which by the way, when they called him teacher, they demoted him. They said, hey, he's not savior because he didn't save. And he's not healer because he didn't heal. So the best we can call this guy is teacher. And Jesus overhearing this whole conversation goes, hey, do not fear, only believe. For real? Like, let's review. 
My daughter was alive, sick, and dying. I came to you. Now my daughter's dead. And Jesus goes, fear not, believe. And I got to imagine Jerry's just like, nope, just stop, believe. But stop, do not fear, just believe. And see, what Jesus says forcefully is he goes, your, your daughter's not dead till I say she's dead. This isn't over until I say it's over. Nothing is complete until I say it's complete. Do not fear, only believe. And I got to imagine that in that situation, Jairus is going, I still don't know what to do with that. I think Jesus has given us some foreshadowing what's about to happen next. Let's keep reading on. Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 5, verse 38. Then they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So Jesus shows up, gets to Jairus' house, and I think Jesus is a little bit surprised. Walks in the door, and there's like, like full-on funeral service taking place. People weeping, people crying, people mourning. And Jesus is like, what are you guys doing here? He's like, she's, she's not dead. I didn't, I didn't give this girl permission to die yet. She's not dead. I, I'm here. I'm about to do some, some stuff. And they start laughing at him. And, and like they mock Jesus to his face, laughing. And I love this next verse. Don't miss this. It says, but he put them all outside. Now, some of us read that because in, in our head, we have this idea that Jesus is this, you know, 170-pound nothing of a guy with panting, proving hair, and he walks around with baby lambs, and he talks with a subtle, sweet southern accent, okay? Some of us believe that. That's not my Jesus, but some of us believe that when Jesus shows up in this situation, he'd be like, excuse me, could you go outside? I mean, you know, they, they, they think, hey, like, it's like, I'm, I'm Jesus, and I'd like to do something here. You know, I mean, like, what, what is it? Jesus says, he put them outside. Now, here's the word. I'm going to teach you a little Greek this morning. The word is ekbalo. Ekbalo. It means to throw out, to expel, or to repel as you would an invading enemy. Okay? A little forceful here. To throw out, to expel, to repel as you would an invading enemy. I think it went something like this. Jesus walks in. What are you guys doing? She's not dead. And they laugh at him. And I think Jesus starts, get out. Just get out. This is the same kind of language that's used with Jesus in the temple, busting out the bullwhip and tipping over tables. Like, I think Jesus said it once, get out. And I think the guy that didn't get out went out the window. And Jesus threw him. Jesus threw him. Get out. I said, get out. And you slow down here. Go, wait a minute. So wait a minute. Jarius comes to Jesus. Asks Jesus to go with him to heal his daughter. Jesus says yes. It doesn't go the way that Jairus thought it would go because God doesn't do what we always want him to do the way we want him to do it. So they get to Jairus' house. Jesus gets angry at the people who are mourning and laughing at him, throws the dude out the window. That's really how this went. The Bible says, yeah. Now, now here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, it's just me, okay? If I'm Jairus, 
what's the most important thing in that moment? To get to the daughter, right? Like, I'm just saying, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, hey, Jesus, okay, just, just come, come here real quick. Like, just in case you forgot, there's a dead girl in the bedroom. Like, is it really that important to, to do this? I mean, like, is it, like, you're starting a brawl with their company? Like, I mean, is this, like, she's in the bedroom, you're fighting in the living room. What's going on? And see, I think this is, I think this is a big strategic moment. So I think Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm here to do something bigger and more significant than you ever thought I could do. But see, before we get to that, we got a clean house. See, the environment isn't right. The atmosphere in here isn't right. There's some spiritual unhealth going on in this home. So Jesus says, before I bring her back, first I'm going to clean the house. I got to get rid of some stuff. Because I'm going to bring in some stuff. And I think this is true for you and it's true for me. God continually has to throw things out of our lives so that he can bring more joy into our lives. This leads me to this question, what do you need to get out of your house? What do you need to get out of your house? See, Jesus is showing up to perform a miracle. Before he ever gets to the miracle, he goes, listen, before I bring joy into your life, i got to get some stuff out of the house. Before I bring some blessing into the house, I've got to get some stuff out of the house. And the question is, what needs to get out of your house? What's taking place in your house that needs to get out of your house? Because here's the thing. You and I cannot hold on to Jesus and hold on to sin at the same time. We cannot do it. We cannot hold on to our sin and hold on to Jesus at the same time. See, far too many of us are begging God to bless our sin. And then when we get angry, when he doesn't do it, we're asking God to bless our sin, to bless our rebellion, to bless our disobedience. And when he doesn't do it, we're going, I don't even know if God's real anymore. He refuses to bless my sin. And see, what God really wants to do is he wants to remove some stuff out of your house so he can put more joy in your house. Maybe think of it this way. How many of you have ever been out to eat at a restaurant with somebody who's a really picky eater? Really picky eater. A couple elbow jabs, like, regularly, okay? This is how, this is how picky people order, right? They'll be like, tell me about this. And you know the first thing they talk about, they're not going to order anyway. Like, it's, a, it's like a mulligan. Tell me about the chicken. No, I didn't want that anyway. Anyway, tell me about this. And, and this is what happens, right? What comes on that? So I'm going to start with the salad. I'd like a salad. What kind of, what kind of dressing is on that salad? I'd like the dressing on the side. Now tell me about, okay, I get to choose two sides. Well, here's the thing. I don't like either of those sides. Can I, can I order something off the menu? Can I do it? And, and the waiter eventually says yes. And if you're the person there who's not being picky, you're going, I wonder what they're going to do in the kitchen. Like when the chef gets this thing and it's like, we hated every single thing on the menu and created our own adventure. What is going to happen? And see, what happens is, I think, when it comes to our relationship with God, is many of us feel like God's just a big menu that we can order and pick and choose off of. And so, go, oh, yeah, you know, you know what I want, man? I want love. I want God to love me, and I want God to be my friend, and I want to be his child. So give me that. Give me that. Like, I want that. In fact, can I get two of those? Can I get two of those? Bring me two. Extra, extra of those. Okay, I want that. But some of these stuff, like some of this other stuff, put that on the side. Like, I don't, I don't know how much of that I actually want to put on. I just want to, I want the option 
God, to maybe pour a little bit of that out. Like, so bring me some of that on the side. And then if we're completely honest with stuff, we're going, hey, don't even bring me that. Like, don't, don't even bring me some of that stuff. You keep that back in the kitchen. So I had some of that one time, and I didn't really like it. And we try to take this approach to God. I'll take what I like. What I might not like, I'll get as a side. And stuff that I know that I definitely won't like, you can just keep that back in the kitchen. As for many of us, we're asking God to bless our sin, which goes completely against who he is. It goes completely against what he desires to do in your life and in my life. And see, God continually has to throw stuff out so he can bring more joy in. And this is what happens next. Jesus takes mom and dad into the room, verse 41, and taking her by the hand, he being Jesus said to her, Talithia kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up, from, got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Verse 43. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and then told them to give her something to eat. I love this. Jesus spends more time clearing out the house than he does bringing the sick girl back to life. And I love that Jesus shows up. He says, little girl, get up. She gets up. Jesus is like, two things real quick, real quick. Number one, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody. Number two, get her a sandwich. She is hungry. This girl was dead and she's alive. That, that works up a hunger inside of a person. Get this girl a PB&J, get out some cold cuts, feed her. She was dead. And now she's not dead anymore. Feed this girl. And see, I think, I think the reason that Jesus says, hey, let's keep this on the DL. Let's not talk about this. Because he was revealing for the first time exactly what his mission was. See, that Jesus wasn't here just to turn good people or turn bad people into good people. He wasn't here just to take people who had some struggles and give them no more struggles. That Jesus was here to take dead people and bring them back to life. In fact, I think there's five things that Jesus reveals to every single one of us in Mark chapter 5. I think the first one is he wants to reveal his glory. He wants to reveal to us exactly who he is, that he is Jesus, that he is the Savior, that he is the healer, that he wants to reveal to us that we can trust him, that we can put our faith in him, that we can put our confidence in him, but we should never think that he will always do what we want him to do. But we can always trust him, even when things aren't going the way we think they should go. Number three, Jesus wants to get some stuff out of Jairus' house, and he wants to get some stuff out of our house. Number four, Jesus always has a greater miracle planned. Because what was, what was Jairus' original request? To heal his sick daughter, right? Jesus had a greater miracle plan. I'm going to bring your dead daughter back to life. And like, I'm just saying, if you and I just end up getting recruited to superhero school, and we stand in line to get our powers, you can have healing the sick. I'll just, you can have it all day long, I'll give it to you. 
Because bringing the death back to life is mine, because that's a cool power. Oh, you think they're dead? They're not dead until I say they're dead. Get up. See, Jesus wanted to reveal himself in such a way that some people had never heard about, that some people hadn't even seen yet. See, I think the fifth thing that Jesus wants to do is he wants to reveal to the world that he's here to bring dead people back to life. See, according to Scripture, that when you and I have sin in our lives, we're spiritually dead. The Bible uses language like we're dead in our sins and we're dead in our transgressions, which really means we're just spiritually dead. That sin not only separates us from God, but spiritually it causes us to be dead. And here's the thing, here's the thing. If you and I left right now and went to a funeral home, and we said, hey, you're a funeral home, you've got some dead bodies. Could you bring out the freshest dead body to us? Like, there's all kinds of things we could do to try to help it, right? We could, we could put some Christian music on. We could put a Christian T-shirt on that body. Like, we could even lead some Bible studies. We could do four steps to financial freedom, 10 steps to have a better marriage, 12 steps to overcoming addiction. We could have a little prayer service. We could even, listen, we could even have a little Bernie's weekend, okay? We could take the body. We could go to another church. We could prop him up. We could stand him up during worship. We could even put his hands in the air, okay? And we could bow his head when he prayed. I think that would kind of happen naturally anyway. We could do that. And you know what would happen at the end of that service? Still be dead. See, the only thing that's going to change a dead person's life if they're touched by Jesus, and he brings dead people back to life. You see, maybe, maybe the reason you're here today is because Jesus is pursuing you. Maybe God the Father wanted to communicate something to you this morning. Maybe it's just for the first time that you know that he loves you. Maybe he wanted to speak to you about that frustration you've had because he didn't do exactly what you thought he would do or at least thought he should do. Maybe he just wanted you to know that his plan is better. You just haven't seen the full thing yet. Maybe there's some of you here and the very reason you're here today is because spiritually, you're dead. And because of Jesus, because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, we no longer have to be spiritually dead, but we can spiritually have life. Because Jesus washes our sins away. He removes our sins, and then he gives us his righteousness. He gives us life and life to the full. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise again so we could have a behavior modification program. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave so that people who were once dead could now have life. Let's pray. Father God, we do come before you this morning. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you revealed yourself to us in a way that we could understand God, we thank you for your word, that as we read your scriptures, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. God, that it's your breathing, living, active word, that as we read your scriptures, God, we hear your voice. And God, I pray this morning that we would hear your voice loud and clear. God, I pray that you would help us to respond to you this morning, that we would respond to you in a way that exalts you and glorifies you, a way that worships you. God, maybe for some of us this morning, we just need to spend some time 
confessing that we've been frustrated and angry with you because we thought and we begged and we asked you to do something and you didn't do it. Or at least you haven't done it yet. Maybe for some of us, that's been a huge barrier in our belief and our walk with you. God, I pray this morning we would ask you for your forgiveness. But I also pray that you would help us to increase our faith in you, that we could trust in you, even though things aren't going the way we thought they ought to go. God, maybe there's some of us here this morning that the first step we need to take is to say yes to you. That maybe this morning as we were in your word, there'd be some of us here, God, that would say, you know what? I don't want to hold on to my sin anymore. I don't want to desire that stuff anymore. But what I really need is Jesus. What I really need is him to be my Lord and to be my Savior. I want him to touch me and to bring me from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive because only he can do that. God, I pray that in that moment that you would call people to yourself and that they would respond. Jesus, I pray that we worship you this moment, that you would work in a mighty way, that you would be glorified and exalted, that lives would be changed and the disciples would be made. Jesus, it's in your great, holy, and powerful name we pray. Amen.